Hey, it's Che Webster from Roleplay Rescue, and you are listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. In Chapter 17, the PCs travel through the streets of Silmoral towards Burtum Square, where the public execution is about to begin. But they walk right past it. Yellowfly doesn't want to be too close to the action, so he installs his gang on the rooftop of the Dunwich Cidery Company, where they can watch in safety and try to think of a plan without worrying about being made by Bellic's spies. The execution plays out as expected. It's presided over by the magistrate, who plays to the crowd's thirst for blood and lauds the awful affair as an example of justice done at the same time. After watching the event to its conclusion, the companions silently mull over what must seem like a very short list of viable options. That's when Catsbane has an idea. We don't yet know what it is, but it has something to do with the time he spent working as an apprentice in the Tower of the Royal Magus. Chapter 18, Part 1, Day 52, Afternoon. Party Status, Yellowfly, 15 of 15 hit points. Everyone had a part to play. The purchase of this service would be an expensive one. Yellowfly needed to bribe one of the girlfriends of the palace watch to drip a little poison in her lover's ear. Not real poison, of course. That would not be as damaging or costly. No, they wanted her to pour a drop of misinformation. In doing so, she would take on real risk. That was the rub. So they would have to pay her enough to disappear for a long time in the likely case that her involvement put her in danger. For this, Yellowfly expected to pay 250 gold pieces. That was a lot of money, money he didn't have, even after he sold the silk scarf and velvet bag, two items of value the companions had picked up along their adventures. He still only had 70 gold pieces and a handful of mixed small change. The locksmith's fee had put a real dent in their collective purse. Hopefully there was something worthwhile in that box. The fighter thought about this as he made his way to find out. Argen Mechmit was a specialist who worked both a legitimate business and an illegitimate one. He built and installed locks during the day, while at night he specialized in breaking them open. He lived right above his shop, Mechmit's key and tumbler. Yellowfly ignored the front door with the sign over the lintel and instead went around the back. He climbed a flight of wooden steps and knocked on the door. After a minute, it opened a crack. Yellowfly cleared his throat. <clears> throat> For the moon never beams, he said. The voice on the other side bore a discernible native Nepulic accent hidden under a practiced Silmorian. Without bringing me dreams. 
The door opened the rest of the way and Yellowfly stepped into a very tidy little study that smelled of mint. It had a small desk, a shelf lined with books and neatly stacked papers, and two upholstered chairs. On the desk was his lockbox. Welcome, welcome, said Mechmit. He had a large hooked nose and black bushy eyebrows. His back was slightly stooped, and the man moved with the difficulty that Yellowfly guessed came from arthritis. I hope the contents were worth your price, grumbled Yellowfly. Mechmit smiled an ugly gap-tooth grin. <laughs> you are not the first to say that. Well, you can see for yourself. I just open the lock. I never touch the contents. I don't even look inside. Do you wish privacy? Yes, if you don't mind, said Yellowfly. He strode towards the desk while Mechmit hobbled into the next room. Thinking of Tam, he said a little prayer for good luck to Chartoon, reached out, and pulled back the lid. What do you suppose is in the box? We know there's coins inside. If there was anything fragile, it's likely to be broken now. Cole threw it to the ground when he saved Catsbane from walking off the Harpy's Cliff. I think the contents of the box would depend on whether that dungeon under the sawmill has actually been abandoned or not. If it has been, then the contents are most likely worth very little. But if the Weeping Eye intends to use their secret location again one day, the contents might be very valuable. Well, I haven't decided which is true, so let's play an Uno reverse card and run it backwards. If the box holds a treasure, the dungeon is still active. If not, it's abandoned. I'm going to say that the box will hold coins that total up to a value of 0 to 400 gold pieces. I'll get this number by rolling a d6 and subtracting 2, then multiplying the result by 100. In short, any roll under a 3 means the box is full of nearly worthless copper pennies. Now, if the dice show that there is something of value in the box, I might allow for a chance for there to be something else in there, a special item of some kind, or a clue. But there's no point in trying to figure that out just yet. Let's get a d6 and start with the coins. Rolling. Hmm. A 4. Minus 2 means there's coins adding up to 200 gold pieces. Well, I guess this means the dungeon has not been abandoned, but I don't think this is enough to warrant a roll for something else. This is going to be just enough to pay off the royal guard's girlfriend, with barely 18 gold pieces left for the party members to keep for themselves. You know, they say that crime doesn't pay, but from my perspective, Yellowfly's gang pays and pays and pays. Well, the party may be poor, but they are growing in power nonetheless. Today, Yellowfly achieves level 3. Is there anything better than a level up in D&D? I am super excited. Let's grab some more dice and get to rolling. The first roll is the most important one. Fly is a fighter. He needs hit points, and the more, the better. I'm using a D8 to determine how many he'll gain. The roll? Crap, I got a four. Four is my minnow number, so there will not be any bonuses or bumping up. Fly's maximum hit points go up to 19. Still a very good score, to be fair. Now, there's still chances for magic to happen, because attribute score bonuses are next. Rolling a d6, four. Strength. A six, yes. Twelve becomes thirteen, and here's that magic I was looking for. Yellowfly now gets a plus one to hit and damage rolls. Sweet. I don't even care what happens next. Wait, I shouldn't say that. It might anger the dice gods. I'll just shut up and roll. Intelligence. A four. Wisdom. I've got a five. Dexterity. Another six. Ten becomes eleven. No bonus or mechanical change there, but still, that feels great. And we're not even done. Constitution. A three. Charisma. I've got a two. 
You know what? That was actually a very lucky level up overall. I'm extremely satisfied. Yellowfly really jumped ahead in power, and the timing is good. He's going to need all of it. Between the Lines, Nepule. In a way, the kingdom of Camertine is really two kingdoms. There's the capital of Silmoral, of course, which is and always has been the seat of power. And then there's Nepule to the west. Nepule used to be a separate and sovereign kingdom of its own, but it bent the knee to its more powerful neighbor and allowed itself to be annexed. This capitulation took place at around the same time the villages of Clearwater and Rull were established a little over 300 years ago. The ruler who negotiated this annexation was, incidentally, the regent Thury, whose name is now most often used to refer to the gate that keeps Silmoral's poor out of the way of its finer inhabitants. There's something almost poetic about that, because when Nepal was absorbed, it began a long tradition of what became a kind of two-caste system in Camertine. Those of Nepulic heritage would forever be marked as intellectually inferior, uncultured, and good for little more than menial labor. And how were they marked? You'll have noticed by now that those of Nepulic descent often have a different accent than those with the pure Silmorian blood. Often, but not always. With three centuries to adapt, many Nepulic families learned to adjust and took on the accents and attitudes of their supposed betters. Others, like Cole and his parents, for example, have resisted the change, or just never bothered. Chapter 18 Part 2 Day 53 Morning Party status Catsbane 6 out of 6 hit points Spells available Catsbane has memorized Read languages And magic missile Everyone had a part to play They had spent all the first evening And all the second day Preparing for these next few hours Cole had been coaching Catsbane non-stop so if he couldn't do it properly by now, he'd probably never be able to pull it off. A Nepulic accent would greatly improve his disguise. As for his physical appearance, there wasn't much the young wizard could do about his stature, but he could change some things. He was clean-shaven now. To hide his hair, he had a felt hat trimmed with fox fur pulled tight over his scalp. He wore a clean pair of linen trousers and a tight leather jerkin. All in all, he thought he looked rather good, Xavion the Red would have hired someone who looked like him to run errands at the castle. I think it's almost a sure thing that Catsbane can get past the royal guards. Catsbane is very familiar with the grounds, and with Carrick, and with the people the Magus does business with. The only real danger is that someone remembers him from his description. Technically, he's a wanted man, though the bounty on his head is no longer fresh, and even Lady Bellagrette has probably found someone new to be angry with. Still, there is some danger here. I'll say a roll of a 1 or 2 on a d20 will spell disaster. The roll. Lucky 13. He's safe for now. The palace guard at the Cernan Gate was new and, having never seen Catspin before, had tested him. Wild the usual, boy, grumbled the guard while he scowled at Catspin's letter. The letter was a forgery, made to look like it came from his first master, Xavion's hand. The usual girl, Catsbane had answered in his best Nepulic. Master Xavian usually sends a girl, the guard had sniffed. Oh yes, quite right. Where's she then? She's ill. May I pass? 
Catsbane had taken his letter of permission back from the guard, feigning irritation, and made his way through the royal gardens, right up to the castle gates. Here he had repeated the performance from before with another pair of guards and was permitted entry. Although it had been weeks since anyone had been looking for someone of his description, the young wizard's heart still pounded with apprehension. Eventually, he found that his terror had been replaced by a thrilling adrenaline high. He felt utterly alive and fully present. He suddenly recalled that, when he first met Shawnee, he had asked her why she did what she did. Now he understood. This feeling was wonderful. By the time he reached the door to Carrick's tower in the laboratory level, he was smiling like a goblin. He had to force the grin from his face and take a deep breath before reaching out for the brass knocker. He heard the latch, and then the door opened. A young woman with very pale skin stood in the gloom, holding a polishing cloth. Catsbane very much wanted to ask her if she was on the tubes or if she was still working her way through the beakers and flasks. Yes, she said curtly. Her eyes darted to the letter in his hand. What do you want? She was new, thought Catsbane, so she had not yet been starved for company. Um, yes, uh, hello, said Catsbane in his awkward Nupulik. You were not expecting me? No, I don't think so. Who are you? Catsbane held up his forged letter and the new apprentice took it from him unfolding it and reading it over without inviting him inside. The master did not tell me to prepare these items, said the woman. Catsbane shrugged. I'll just wait here while you get them all packed and ready. He leaned against the wall, hoping he looked casual. He was counting on a couple of things. One, that this new apprentice would not know what some of the requested items in the letter looked like. And two, that she was pressed for time. She reread the letter with a doubtful expression on her face. As the door was about to close, he stuck in his foot to block it and leaned close, saying, I could come in and help you f- find everything if you'd like. I- I've been here a hundred times before, and I do believe I know where most of these items are kept. Welcome, Sojourners. You have found yourself a cozy place at Sojourners Awake. I'm Jonathan, and together we produce audio dramas while playing our favorite 5th edition role-playing game. Our stories of epic fantasy are told in the homebrewed world of Bonsaro. Heroes like Felthrin Grovelor, The Bookends, and Traina the Dryad all come to life in this podcast. We focus on actual play storytelling while trimming all of the table talk and rules discussion in post. Instead, we focus on forming a compelling narrative together as players, with the end result being a wonderful audio drama which you can enjoy. So visit Sojourners Awake today, and as always, may your story continue. Listen, it's not really a good idea for you to be in here, so let's get your things together quickly and then you can be on your way. Come on in. Catsbane followed the new apprentice into the well-known space with all the familiar smells and sounds. The weeping from the pixie jar came to his ear immediately, bringing back a flood of memories. How recently his life had been turned upside down. It was astonishing to think that, if it hadn't been for Lady Belligret and her dead cat, he should still be right here, polishing flasks and listening to a fairy cry. They located the first item fairly quickly. It was a potion of diminution in a slender red tube. The tube had a stopper of wax and was bound in a sheath of twine. This was put on a nearby table while Catsbane pointed out the location to the next item. Yes, n- no, it- it's up one shelf. Yes, the the green vial. Which one? Oh, I'm not uh, entirely sure. 
If you sniff it, it will smell of mustard seed. The apprentice reached up to the shelf and pulled down one of two almost identical strange flat jars. It looked like two saucers sandwiched together. There was a little cork stopper on top that the apprentice pulled out and then sniffed. She blinked heavily, swayed on her feet, and then crumpled to the floor, fast asleep. I'm sorry to have done that to you, said Catsbane. Now that he was free to move about as he pleased, he made his way to the spiral staircase. As long as he was robbing the place, he might as well take a few extra things. He was already a criminal with a death sentence hanging over his head. They couldn't kill him twice, so why not? He bounded up the stairs two at a time, knowing the apprentice would not be asleep for long. But he abruptly halted just before reaching the top. On the few occasions that Kara could come back from wherever it was he spent his time away from the tower, he had always spoken the same word at the top of the stairs, and a different word as it came back down. There was clearly some kind of ward here that his master was disarming and rearming. He found it right away, though anyone that was not paying attention would certainly have missed it. A dark crystal shard pushed into the corner of the top step. When its glint caught his eye, Caspian stopped and spoke the word he had heard Carrick speak in the past. Algra. He knew two words in Dwarvish, and this was one of them. It meant summer. The other word he knew was Kira, winter. Catsbane did not speak this word since he believed that that would rearm the crystal. He picked it up and examined it, holding it between thumb and forefinger. Somehow the dwarves had managed to trap a blizzard in here. Once the crystal was armed, by speaking the dwarven word for winter, it would quickly charge up, and then any living thing standing near it would cause it to explode in a tightly focused ball of unimaginable cold. He placed the little shard in his pocket and stepped up and into the tower top chamber. Carrick's study was surprisingly minimal. Xavion the Red had kept a private room such as this one, but it had been chaos manifest. Conversely, Carrick's room was immaculately well-ordered and free of clutter. There were two bookshelves, each filled with tomes neatly stacked side by side. There was also a writing table featuring an inkpot and quill. A large humanoid skull with a half-melted candle stuck to the top occupied one corner, while a letter with a broken wax seal was in the other. The letter was folded, but flapped slightly in the mild breeze that came in through the single arch-top window, so that it seemed almost to be waving hello. For no reason, Catsbane took it and stuck it in his pocket, along with the shard. On further impulse, he suddenly grabbed a piece of parchment and dipped the quill into the ink pot. He thought for a few moments before hastily scribbling out a little note. This he folded over several times, and then rolled into a tight tube. He bit his lip and reached out to the bookshelf, daring to touch one of Carrick's books. When he pulled on the spine, some unseen force from the other side resisted and pulled the book forcefully back into place. Catsbane suddenly became aware that he was in the private chamber of the kingdom's archmage. There were powers in here he could not begin to understand. To remain would be unwise. He reconsidered his plan to snoop and crept back down the stairs. When he reached the bottom, he stepped over the sleeping form of the apprentice and grabbed the potion of diminution. He pulled free the wax stopper and poured the syrupy liquid into a wooden bowl. Then he filled the bowl with iron pellets from a container near the Ferrum Manducare. It had been silent in its box up until now, but when I heard the pellets being scooped up, Catsbane could hear it begin to chitter and scuttle about. When the special meal was prepared, Catsbane slid the potion-soaked pellets through a slot in the creature's box. The scuttling grew louder and then stopped as the creature fed. Hoping that his plan had worked, 
Catsbane took a deep breath, opened the lid of the box, and reached in his arm. His fingers touched something smooth and hard, the creature's carapace. He grasped the wriggling thing and pulled it out. Thankfully, the potion had done its work, and the beast was no more than a few inches from tip to tail. Its little feet walked mechanically in the air, finding no purchase, while Catsbane held it aloft, regarding it with a mixture of marvel and revulsion. Before he could change his mind, he slipped it into his shoulder bag and turned towards the door. But there was one last thing to do. He slipped the curled-up note he had written into one of the glass beakers. The apprentice would wake up and find it eventually, but by then he would be long gone. He stole a last glance back at the young woman. He would have liked to take the pot of sleeping dust too, but he dare not risk waking her, so he would have to leave it behind. Well, he had what he was after. So Catsbane slipped out the door, walked down the hall and through the gate, and then left Whitestone Castle behind him. He thought to himself that he would probably never come back again. A potion of diminution will last for 7 to 12 turns, or 7 to 120 minutes. Before I roll to see how long this one will stay in effect, I need to decide exactly when the execution is to begin. I'll say that the ceremony will start in exactly one hour, and heads will begin to roll in one hour and twenty minutes. This will become important soon. Anyway, the magical effect of the potion will last for… hmm, a one on the die, seventy minutes. Usually a low roll is not what you want to see, but in this case it might actually save some lives. All the same, the PCs had better hurry up. Chapter 18, Part 3, Day 53, Late Morning, Party Status, Shawnee, 13 out of 13 hit points. Everyone had a part to play. After Catsbane had gone off on his mission, Shawnee had waited for what she guessed was about an hour. Then, hoping her time was good, she pushed her borrowed handcart past the gate. As she rattled along, one of the guards called out to her. Hetty had said they would do that. Oi, cidery girl, bring your wares over here so as we can have a look. Shawnee had obeyed, pushing the lurching cart with its wooden wheels up to the certain gate. There were two guards there, wearing plate and mail armor, and with red sashes crossing their breastplates. The guard that had called her over was an ugly man with thick lips and a bristly black beard. Mm, right, let's see what you've got then, he said, wearing a lascivious smile. He didn't look at the cups or jugs of cider at all, but stared hard at her chest. Oh, it all looks very sweet indeed. Shawnee attempted a girlish smile and deliberately touched her hair, hoping that she would not have to stay and flirt with these men for long. As it turned out, she didn't. After only a few minutes of enduring their innuendos, she saw Catsbane approaching from the other side of the gate. He was moving toward her at a good clip. How about a free one for me, sweetling? Asked the guard. He reached out a mailed hand and stroked her arm. She allowed this, though in her mind she was slowly pushing a dagger through his neck. Three cup is a cup, she replied meekly. Mum will be angry with me if I give away free drinks. Tell the old bat you spilled a cup, or does some fool knocked it over? Come on, sweetling, I'm parched standing guard out here all day, and we're going to miss the fun down Burns. Come on now. His smile made her ill, but Shawnee managed to grin back. She hoped it didn't look too forced. Finally, Catsbane showed up. Cup aside, my lord, she asked. Three pennies a cup. Ah, he said, still using his Nepulic accent. I suppose I could do with a little refreshment. Now, let me see. He fished around in his pockets, presumably looking for some money. I'm sure I have a few coins here, uh, somewhere. 
Go ahead and make me a cup. Catsbane next looked in his shoulder bag and produced a silver coin. Aha, here's a silver. You can make change? He asked. Mm, I think so, replied Shawnee. Wanna buy a couple of drinks for us, eh? Suggested the guard. It's one of the king's free days of justice, yeah. Well... Caspain pretended to consider it. I suppose I could. Why not? A drink for each of these good men, and you keep the change, my dear. Shawnee had bowed deeply and poured a cup for Catsbane. He drained it immediately, and, as she served the other two guards, he discreetly slipped the tiny Ferrum Manducare into his empty cup and put it face down on her cart. He made sure to keep his hand over it so it didn't start moving about. When Shawnee returned with the guards' empties, she stacked them on top of Catsbane's cup, further trapping the shrunken creature. Lord, she said, nodding her thanks, and then trundled her cart away in the direction of Burton Square. Catsbane moved very deliberately off in the other direction, towards the tower of Zavi on the Red. Chapter 18 Part 4 Day 53 Noon Party status Cole 12 out of 12 hit points Everyone had a part to play, and Shawnee had told him that he would need to move with haste. So that's what he was doing. Cole was pushing his way to the front of the large crowd, assembled at Burton Square for the final day of blood and justice. When someone got in his way, he clipped them hard with his shoulder. The person he shoved would look back in angry outrage before registering Cole's size. Then they'd just curse and retreat into the press of bodies. What the hell with you? Cole kept the palm of his hand firmly over the top of his cup with the creature trapped inside. To any onlooker, he would have looked like a pushy brute more concerned with not spilling his drink than with making friends. He had a sudden thought and couldn't help but laugh to himself. (laughs) To think that if he had not been grounded after their assault on the safe house weeks ago, if he had been able to help Shawnee and Catsbane at the warehouse, or Yellowfly at the City Watch Tower, then he would be no use to them now. Not one of the others could safely move about in the crowded public space. Shawnee, for example, had not stuck around to sell cider. She had pulled up her hood and left Burton Square immediately after the handoff. He felt a little scratch on the palm of his hand as the creature in the cup scuttled around. It made him shudder, but he did not take his hand away. Instead, he continued to push his way rudely through the crowd, drawing rebukes, but nothing else. He was almost at the front of the stage now. The magistrate was there, with a bell in his hand. To the left of the stage and to the right was a phalanx of soldiers, fifty men on each side. In charge of the left force was the doughty and heavily armored Captain Bellick. On the right was a slender man in ceremonial armor. That must be Sindwan, thought Cole, judging by the gaudy medallion hanging from a chain around his neck. King Colfrey himself was supposed to be in attendance today, but Cole did not see him among either group of assembled guards. The thing scuttled in the cup again, and Cole wondered how long it had been since Catsbane captured and trapped it. The young wizard had mentioned that time would be an important factor in all of their missions, but he had not explained why. Just then, the magistrate swung his bell, and the first knell peeled out. Several things happened at once. I think the companions have put together a very good plan here, one that plays to each of their strengths and utilizes the opportunities available. Still, the best laid plans and all that, right? Something could still go wrong here. What would that look like, I wonder? Could Shawnee be spotted as she leaves? It's unlikely. Someone in the crowd might pick a fight with the likes of Cole? Not much chance of that either, but it's not impossible, I suppose. Someone who's drunk, or even someone as big as he is, might do that. 
Maybe someone bumps into Cole by accident and he drops a strange package. All of these seem very unlikely, but not impossible. So what would the chances actually be? I think I'll roll a simple wandering encounter check. That seems fair in this case. A one on a d6 will indicate that something has gone awry. I'll just grab a die. Ah, this is a nice new pearlescent blue one. Here's the roll. You have got to be kidding me. I got a one. Oh man, how unlucky can these guys be? They can't catch a break for love or money. All right, what does this look like exactly? I think I need some time to figure this out. So instead of continuing the execution scene, I'm going to pivot and end the episode with this instead. She had woken up with her head pounding. The strangely shaped bottle was on the floor beside her, and now she realized that she was on the floor too. What was she doing there? Maybe she could begin to figure out what had happened, if only she didn't have this terrible headache. She picked up the odd bottle and replaced its cork, which was lying by her hip. Getting shakily to her feet, she gently conducted herself to the place where it belonged and replaced it. Scanning the laboratory, things appeared as usual. The crying pixie still wept. None of the equipment seemed to have been tampered with. The only things missing were the items she had set on the table for that errand boy. When the pain in her head subsided, she began a thorough inventory, making her way through her cleaning list in order and from the beginning. Everything was in its place and as it should be, until she found a little note rolled up and stuck into the neck of a glass beaker. She fished it out with a fingernail and carefully unrolled it. The writing was very tidy and contained just two short sentences. It read, I'm sorry to have robbed you. You might wish to flee while you have time. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore, and thanks for all your support. I let this episode run a little bit long, so I'm going to keep this section brief. But I can't sign off without thanking my awesome cast of voice talent, and this episode is bursting with it. In the roles of both Argon Mechmit, the locksmith, and the first Cernan Gateguard is Dungeon Mr. Ty of Adventure Slime Productions. Find out about his new of art in TTRPG and its Kickstarter, plus much more, at adventureslang.com. Playing Carrick's new apprentice is the very talented Erin Balmier. You can find her at Erin Dippity Doo on Twitter. As always, Kyellen is back and killing it, playing the role of Catsbane. And there's another newcomer to the show, too. Robert Newman plays the second Cernan Gateguard. You can find Robert at robertnewmansound.com. Thanks very much to you all, Ty, Aaron, Kyellen, and Robert. Happy holidays, everyone. The adventure will continue next time on Tale of the Manticore. The story where chaos rules. A Theater in the Dark creates original audio fiction, homegrown award-winning audio plays. Whether you want to track down suspects... Like a ripped-up newspaper, we were only getting half the story. Escape those pesky Martians... A metal Martian tripod. A hundred feet high, rolling forth at a terrific speed... Or hunt that dreaded white whale. It's a white whale, I say. A white whale. Skin your eyes for a look sharp for white water if you see but a bubble men sing out. You can journey into the dark with A Theater in the Dark. Stories through sound. Find us by searching A Theater in the Dark wherever you get your podcasts or online at atheaterinthedark.com.